you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read just the first two verses this morning. We'll take a much larger section next week, but um, I didn't want to pass up this particular appeal that Paul makes in this passage. So hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, working together with him, that is Christ, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, again, we, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might see wondrous things in your holy law. We pray that you would open our hearts, that we might receive the truth, but also the person who speaks these truths, that we would know and, and love the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would give us that wisdom from heaven, and that you would give us uh, not just a new way of life, but as we are new creatures, new creations in Christ, Lord, help us to live in a way that's pleasing to you. Help us to live in a way that is good for us, and help us to live in a way that would give glory to your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As most of you know, um, AI or artificial intelligence has been in the news pretty much every day since January of this year. It's sporadically been prior to that, but almost every single day that I have seen the news, something about artificial intelligence comes up. It's just pervasive in our culture today, not only for the many benefits that it could afford us, but also for the many dangers it provides. Uh, of course, there are many uh, unbelievers, especially, who are afraid that somehow AI is going to become sentient in itself and have its own conscience and make its own decisions and rule and conquer our world as we know it. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but uh, as you and I both know, the evil men and women who program it to do these things can cause quite a bit of harm, so I could see why there is uh, quite a bit of fear regarding these things, but uh, nowadays there is a chat bot that can do just about anything. And uh, I read this week that there is a chat bot that's now called AI Jesus. Have you heard of this? Basically, you can ask AI Jesus any question, whether moral or otherwise, and, and this uh, white man with blue eyes and brown hair, an avatar for Jesus, if you will, with a very calm, melodious voice will give you very thoughtful replies to whatever questions you might have regarding the Bible or, or anything else. And apparently a number of people have been going to AI Jesus and asking some very specific questions. Of course, you can make Jesus say and do anything you want in that regard. Um, uh, in fact, you'll find a number of young people that have been trying to make AI Jesus speak like he's a surfer dude or like a valley girl or whatever else it is. So really, idolatry makes its sense perfectly in the virtual realm, if you will. Of course, whoever is programming it is what you're really getting the answer from. You're not getting the answer from Scripture, per se, but rather from this person's view of Scripture, which probably isn't a good one. But then in addition to that, um, this week, I think it was last, it may have been last week, a German theologian and philosopher was using chat GPT. If you've not heard of this, it's, again, pervasive today. Use this program to generate an entire worship service 
in Bavaria, in, in Germany. So this artificial intelligence program developed the music, the prayers, the reading of Scripture, and even the preaching itself. Four different avatars were used. Different pictures, different people's faces were presenting all of this worship service in, in many different ways. And the person who created it said he was very pleased that overall it was a pretty solid church service. But there were a number of people throughout the service that were laughing at different times because of the, the monotonous deadpan delivery of all the words. And sometimes the preaching itself was delivered so quickly you really couldn't keep up with what this person was trying to say. So I'm glad to know that my job is safe for at least a few more months until they work out the kinks and then go from there. But what a day we live in, right? I mean, every day are we not baffled by what, what's next? I mean, what can we do today that we couldn't do yesterday? But, but actually what amazes me even more than that is that God would ever choose to use a fallen man to present the gospel to his people. I've mentioned this to you before, but that he would ever use a sinner like me to present anything of truth or beauty or goodness in terms of the Lord to anyone else, knowing that I'm not a perfect representation of Jesus. I mean, if you think about it, really, AI could, in in a way, preach a better sermon that I could deliver to you and and probably give you a much better image of a, a, a good human being than I can present to you as well. And so you would think that in some way, you know, maybe AI is the way of the future, right? But the problem is it's, it's missing a, a key component of the gospel itself. Because the gospel is not just a message of salvation to sinners, but it's a message of restoration of sinners. That God is taking a fallen human being and making him better. Sanctifying him through and through presenting a message of glory, of the redemption, not only of the soul, but also of the body itself. To miss that, you've missed the gospel, you see. The gospel is not just about my ticket to heaven, if you will, but it's that I would become a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. Glory, hallelujah. God can redeem a man. And then he uses that same man to tell others about Christ, as an ambassador for Christ. So even if you could program AI Jesus or AI chatbots to do what I do, it would never definitively give you the gospel because it's presenting virtual reality, not reality. God redeems men and women. And he does it in such a glorious way, even though it's a slow and painful process that takes many, many years Nevertheless, this is the gospel. This is the good news that God has done this, is doing this, and will continue to do this in you and me. This is what we share with our fellow sinners when we present the gospel to them, that there is hope of salvation, there is hope of restoration, hope of reconciliation, not only with God, but also with our fellow man. Therefore, Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 1 of our passage this morning, he says, working together with him, that is, men, real men, working together with Christ, real women working together with Christ, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God 
in vain. If you remember, he's already made the original appeal to the church in Corinth. He's already told them what they need to do to be reconciled to God, simply trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the payment that Christ has already paid for us on the cross. But now there's some question, if you will, regarding whether or not they still believe that same message. There's a question regarding whether or not they still believe the messenger himself. They've begun to reject the Apostle Paul, reject his teaching, reject his preaching. And so now he's saying, my concern is that you're somehow receiving the grace of God in vain, or that you have received it in vain. Ellen and I were talking the other day about the parable of the sower, and she had read somewhere recently. She's wondering, based upon how the the person presented the topic, of whether or not only one in four people who hear the gospel actually receive it the appropriate way. If you remember, the the parable of the sower is an allegorical story about a man who goes out to sow seed in in a field, and the the first seed falls on the path, and if you remember, the birds immediately come and eat it up. The second seed falls amongst the rocky ground, and with very little soil, it springs up quickly, but then is scorched by the sun. The third seed falls among thorns, and as a result, the thorns choke uh, the crop, and it doesn't produce any more. And then finally, the fourth seed falls amongst the good ground, right? And it produces some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. And as Jesus begins to explain the, the meaning of that, he's saying that some people, when they hear the gospel preached, the devil immediately comes and steals it from them to where they can't really comprehend what they're hearing. They really can't embrace what they're seeing. They don't fully perceive the gospel. But then secondly, there, there are some people who hear the gospel and are so excited about it at first, but then something happens in their life. Some trial, some horrible tragedy, some aspect of persecution immediately makes them walk away. Because they're like, well, how could God do such a thing like this? And then there's that third group that uh, received the gospel seemingly very excitedly, but then over time they begin to wane and wane and wane in their faith because now their eyes are completely wrapped up in the things of this world rather than in the things of heaven. They've lost sight of Christ altogether. Finally, there's that fourth seed that falls on the good ground, and it represents the Christian who continues to grow and to produce good fruit because the closer they get to Christ the more fruit they bear, right? I don't know about you, but I've seen clear examples of each one of those. Now, I've had people, literally, that have come up to me right after preaching a sermon and have begun to scream at me because they would not receive the truth that I was preaching. I've had others that were friends of mine that seemingly accepted the gospel wholeheartedly, then something bad happened in their life and and they have never sought him ever again. I've had others in the church that I've seen that, again, seemed like they were growing. They seemed like they were really grappling with these truths, but then somehow they came into some money and and something else happened and they just lost sight of the gospel. But thankfully, I can say, I have seen many others that have received the gospel and I have been astounded by how much God has changed them over the years, and they've grown more and more kind and patient and loving in a way that I wish I could be. But as I said, it's not necessarily 25% of the people who hear the gospel receive it the right way, but there is clearly a pattern there. There are different ways of receiving it, and some 
truly receive the gospel in vain. They have accepted it, at least in part, but then somehow, for one reason or another, they really don't know Christ. They really have never understood the gospel clearly, and it's not something for which they live. In this particular case, Paul is suggesting that some might have received the grace of God in vain. This is a recurring anxiety that Paul has with some of the churches that he preaches in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says that he sent Timothy to those in Thessalonica after they had gone through a great bout of persecution to learn about their faith because he feared that somehow the tempter had tempted them to walk away from Christ and that his labor would be in vain. Similarly, Galatians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul tells us that some in the church in Galatia he had great fears over that, that again, he had labored over them in vain because they have turned away from the gospel back toward Judaism. And with, with great passion and, and great zeal, the Apostle Paul makes his appeal to these same people to go back to the love that they, they first knew, to, to repent and to believe the good news of the gospel of Christ, to be reconciled to God solely through the cross of Christ. Notice this is not a monotonous speech that he makes, nothing like an AI sermon whatsoever. It's not filled with words of eloquent wisdom. It's not high philosophy. It's just a simple, direct appeal. Be reconciled to God. This is the day of salvation. Draw near to Christ, very simply. It's not rocket science. But it's interesting, he, he, he quotes a verse in, in verse 2 of our text here. He quotes a verse from the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. And the, the same person that was speaking in the passage in Isaiah 61 that David read earlier that was up on the screen, the suffering servant is the one speaking. So this is the Lord Jesus himself speaking in Isaiah 49, verse 8. And here's what he says to the people that... In the future, after they had been judged for their sin, being dragged away to exile in Babylon, now they're going to come back and return to Jerusalem. And he says to them, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. Now, it's important to understand that not only that this is the voice of Jesus speaking here, as Paul says, but it's also important to know that this statement is only made after a time of judgment. Because prior to this, um, it was a different story altogether. God had not made any promise to help them or to listen to them during the time of judgment, but only after this time of judgment, now that a day of mercy has come. Uh, in fact, uh, many of you, if you've been in Christian circles for a while, most of you at some point in time or another have had someone either quoted to you or you've seen a poster or a piece of jewelry or something in which Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is on it, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and future, right? You've all heard this verse, right? It's taken out of context. Still can be used in some ways. I'm not, uh, I'm not beating up people for using Scripture. That's good. But most people that know Jeremiah 29, 11 do not know Jeremiah 18.11. We're just prior to that. The Lord says to the same people, look, I am preparing disaster for you and devising a plan against you. I don't know anyone who has that memorized or who has that on a piece of jewelry engraved. Or what about Jeremiah 11, 11? There's something about verses 11 in Jeremiah. 
In 11.11, the Lord says, I am bringing disaster upon you that you cannot escape. Though you cry to me, I will not listen to you. So which one of these verses should we go by? What well, depends on what day you're in. Because there was a day of judgment in which God promised he would not listen, he would not help, and there's a day of mercy in which he promises to help and promises to listen. The same passage, Isaiah 49, he's promising this day of help, a day of hearing. But earlier on in Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord begins that prophecy by telling the people, don't bother bringing any more offerings into the temple. Don't spread your hands out in prayer before me anymore because I will not listen to you. I will not help you. You're wasting your time. Well, that's a little strange. What's my point, again, in bringing out the discrepancy between these passages? There's clearly a day of mercy, but there's also clearly a day of judgment, and God acts differently depending upon which day it is. Okay? There's a time for mercy. There's a time for judgment, according to God. There's a favorable time, and there's an unfavorable time in which God will either listen and help you in your time of need, or else he will pour out his wrath upon you in judgment because of your sin. You want to hear some good news? You're in the time of mercy. This is the favorable time. This is the day of salvation. This is Paul's point in our text. This is a glorious day in which we live. Just as the Lord said to the Israelites after the exile that it was a favorable time to draw near to God, and to be reconciled to him. So now Paul says at the end of verse 2, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. And he draws our attention to that, at least in some of the translations you'll see this, beginning with the word behold each time. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Take notice of this. This is a very important day, a very important time in which you live. This is a favorable time. Of course, the implication, though, is that there still is what can be referred to as an unfavorable time that we have to be mindful of, that we often refer to as the day of judgment. It's the opposite of the day of salvation. It's a time in which God will not hear you when you call upon him. He will not listen to you. He will not help you. But some might be thinking, well, that, that doesn't seem right, that God wouldn't listen to me. God wouldn't help me, why would God not listen to my prayers? Well, it comes down to the same reason every time. Sin. Because of sin, God will not listen to your prayer. Listen to this. Psalm 66, verses 17 through 19. David says this, I cried to God with my mouth, and he heard me. But, he says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. But truly, God has listened, and he has attended to the voice of my prayer. He has helped me. Now, I, I think I've shared with you before that uh, one of the ladies that was at a Bible study in our church in Pittsburgh was very upset when I told her this truth. She was telling me that her husband had been praying for certain things and that God was not answering her prayers. And I came out flatly and told her, that well, God doesn't listen to sinners because he was an unbeliever. And it bothered her so much that a week later she professed faith in Christ herself. And then later her husband did. And now he listens to their prayers. But it took telling the truth of the matter 
She assumed that God always listens to your prayers. I was like, no, he doesn't. He doesn't listen to the prayers of sinners. But if that's the case, well, let me prove to you again that it's the case. Just a couple of examples. In Proverbs 15, verse 29, Solomon says that the prayer of the wicked is an abomination in God's ears. So if a sinful, wicked person tries to pray to God, he considers it an egregious offense. What? In John chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus assumes that we all know this is the case. He assumes that we all know this to be true. For he says in that particular passage, he says, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. Did you catch that? He just says it very plainly, very quickly. We know God doesn't listen to sinners. So the, the question is, is, is not, why would God not listen to my prayers? But turn that around. <laughs> why would God ever listen to my prayers? I'm a sinner, and he says he doesn't listen to the sinner's prayer. <laughs> why would he ever listen? Well, he only listens in a day of mercy. He only listens in a favorable time when a sacrifice has been made in your behalf. When there's a way of being reconciled to God. Because without that means of reconciliation, without that sacrifice, he's not going to hear you. He's not going to listen to you, no matter how heartfelt your prayer is. No matter how earnest you are in need. Because you've rejected your maker, he will not listen. But again, the good news is this is the favorable time a favorable, merciful time. And the promise of Scripture is that in a favorable time, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who comes sincerely, honestly before the Lord, admits his sin, trust in Christ, will be saved. Very important passage in the Old Testament that might help you understand this. It's actually a passage that Jesus quotes from when he's on the cross. Psalm 22. If you remember, one of the things that Jesus says, one of the final things that he says while he's on the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Now, in the context in which he shares that, David, who originally is the one who said those words, says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There's no one to help me. But you, O Lord, don't be far off. You are my help. Come quickly to my aid. And then at the end of the prayer, David praises God for hearing him. David praises God for helping him. But notice when Jesus is quoting this same verse, he doesn't get that help. God doesn't listen to him. What does it say? God turns his back upon him on the cross. There are three hours. He pours out his wrath upon him. He receives no help. God doesn't listen. Why? Because Jesus on the cross becomes sin for us. And in that moment, it is the time of of judgment upon sin. And in the time of judgment, no matter how much someone says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He will not listen. Because then it's the time of judgment, you see.
But today is what? The day of salvation. Today is the favorable time. Today is the day of mercy, a day of grace. For now the righteousness of God has been revealed through his son Jesus. Now his mercy is on full display through the cross of Christ. Now all who are far off can be brought near through the blood of Christ. Now we all can be forgiven of our sins and receive the blessings of God merely by calling upon the name of the Lord. That's it. Today is a day of mercy. It's a favorable time. If you remember when Jesus first began his public ministry in Nazareth, his hometown, uh, he read from that text that David read from earlier, Isaiah 61. They handed him a scroll from Isaiah. He began to read it, and it said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then he says, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice the same language that's being used here in our text. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll, and he tells the crowd, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What does he mean? What is he saying? He's saying, today the Messiah has appeared. Today your Savior has come. The servant of the Lord, the suffering servant of the Lord who originally spoke these words is right in your midst. Therefore, today is the favorable time. This is what's referred to as the year of Jubilee. Right Now, Jesus is using Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is using a passage way back in Leviticus chapter 25 in reference to what's known as the year of Jubilee. It was a year, it was every 50th year in the nation of Israel where a number of things took place. It was a time in which every debt was forgiven. If you owed $100,000, it's wiped away. It's a good day. It's a day in which every slave was released from his chains. Didn't, know, didn't matter how much more he owed his master, he was freed. Everyone who had ever lost his property, his homeland, his inheritance, it was given back to him immediately. And it's interesting that the, the, the year of Jubilee always began on a particular day of the year. It was always on the Day of Atonement. Ram's horn would blow, and the, the horn would blow to signify your sins have been forgiven. Your debts have been wiped out. You're free and clear. What Jesus is saying when he's reading that passage from Isaiah 61, which is referring back to Leviticus 25, is simply this. This is the favorable time. This is the year of Jubilee. But not just any year of Jubilee. He's saying this is the Jubilee of Jubilees. All those prior years that we celebrated these things, they were all pointing to something much more magnificent, a year in which all of your sins would be wiped out forever. Free and clear. Doesn't matter how much you owe. Doesn't matter how much debt you have. Spiritually speaking, it's wiped out altogether. So now, indeed, we are living not just in a good time, but in the best of times. Because we are in the favorable year of Jubilee. And so as a result, Paul says in in the midst of this, his, his message then is he makes this appeal, I implore you on behalf of Christ Be reconciled to God, because this is the year of Jubilee. But why? Why why this sense of urgency? The Scriptures continue to reiterate again and again that the day of judgment draws nigh. Because even though we're in a day of mercy, 
that day of mercy runs out. It doesn't last forever. The window will close. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle John begins his letter by saying, the time is near. In other words, the day of judgment draws nigh. In the same way he tells the church in Philadelphia in that, that same uh, beginning of the, the book, he says, hold fast to what you have. Why? Because I am coming soon. The day of judgment draws nigh. Then at the end of the book, Revelation chapter 22, again, he says, surely I am coming soon. The day of judgment draws nigh. And as a result, his people, who have already reconciled with him, can say freely, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? Of course, this is nothing new. When Jesus came on the scene the first time at his coming in his earthly ministry, he kept saying this over and over again, the kingdom of God is near. Now, what he's saying by that is not just that the miracles are here and I'm proving that I'm Christ, but also the day of judgment has also drawn nigh. Even though this is the year of Jubilee, all of this is now set in place. It's all coming. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. John the Baptist saying, repent, repent. Why? Because the day draws near. A couple examples that might help you see this even more clearly. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says something rather strange. He says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. For I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now you have to understand, Jesus is not talking about an earthly judge here. He's talking about our heavenly judge. He's talking about the fact that not of just a prison but of an eternal hell and he's saying if you know that the judge has something against you as you're on your way go and settle with him now this is a important time a very urgent time this is the day of mercy but it will not last reconcile with god through his son jesus the same manner Proclaiming the day of salvation is also something that's considered urgent. Luke chapter 9, when uh, Jesus says to his disciples to follow him, one of them says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, what? Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Likewise, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So there's this sense of urgency, not just for the person hearing the message, but also a sense of urgency for the one proclaiming the gospel message. That somehow this message supersedes even funerals and family reunions. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, Jesus is against funerals or family reunions or weddings or that thing, because we see that he goes to these things, right? We see that he participates in them just as we do, but you'll notice he always goes to them with the intention of proclaiming the kingdom of God. It's not that he forgoes these other things, but the kingdom of God is always first and foremost in his mind. He seeks first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, right? And he's constantly, this is at the forefront of his mind. On another occasion, if you remember when he's proclaiming the gospel to the Samaritan woman, you remember the disciples finally catch up with them, and he's like, you've got to be hungry. Let's get you something to eat. Just stop with this woman. Let's, just, let's take a break with her. And what does he say to them? He says, I have food that you know not of. Right? What's he talking about? He's got a spiritual food that's so much more important than whatever it is that they're trying to give him 
that supersedes anything else that he would do, even his eating and drinking. Again, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't eat or drink. doesn't mean that Jesus didn't multiply the fish and the loaves. But why did he do those things? For the kingdom of God. Everything about it was the sense of urgency because this is a narrow time. It's not a time that will last forever. It's a, it's a window of opportunity that will close. But it's a wonderful time. Use it wisely to tell others about the gospel message. You'll notice that Paul's the same way. He focuses on nothing else except the gospel of Christ and him crucified. He tells the believers in Romans 13, verse 11, the hour has come, he says, for you to wake up from your slumber. For salvation is nearer today than even when we first believed. Christ is coming. He tells the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, Stay awake, be sober, knowing that the day of the Lord will come suddenly like a thief in the night. He makes these types of appeals again and again to believers as well as to unbelievers. The day is coming. The day of judgment is coming. But now is the day of salvation. Tell others about it. This is a, a narrow period of time. But what about the rest of us who believe? Do you and I have that same sense of urgency that Christ had, Paul had? I think it's even harder for those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. Well, no, God's going to save who's going to save. You know, if he doesn't use me, he'll use somebody else. It's that lazy type of thinking. Forgetting that the Lord says, how will they hear without a what? A preacher. He has to be sent. How will they hear without someone telling them the good news? Yes, God may use someone else, but why use someone else when he can use you? If you think about it, even when it comes to the prayer that he tells them to pray to the Lord of the harvest, why do you think he tells them to pray that? Because there aren't that many people that want to go out and do any harvesting. He said, pray, He's, and it's a constant prayer, pray that people will want to go out and to harvest lost souls. Why would you want to do that? It's good news. It's not bad news. I was listening to, um, I was at a bus station when we were at General Assembly because I realized they were going to charge me $30 to park for like a couple hours so I found the bus is right in front of my hotel. So I get on the bus. I'm waiting at the bus station for like, I don't know, 20 minutes. And I had my headphones in, and I was listening to my Christian music. And uh, the old song from the Newsboys came on, I'm Not Ashamed. Do you remember that song? I'm not ashamed. To anyway, if you know what I'm talking about. In one of the lines, he says, I'm not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. He says, what are we sneaking around for? Who are we trying to please, apologizing like we're spreading some kind of disease? I mean, honestly, that is oftentimes, I think, how we think of the gospel. It's like it's some kind of...